Well, church family, let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. And this morning, our reading is going to come from Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. If you've got the insert of the sermon uh, um, notes portion there of your bulletin, you see that my aim is to teach on the most important lesson about children in the Bible. Seems kind of audacious, doesn't it? I mean, who, who am I to say this is the most important? It's not me. It's going to be here, right? It'll be the scripture that will point out what it is I do think is the most important lesson about children in the Bible. And I want God to give all of us grace. This isn't a message just for parents, although I know on the day of baby dedication, it is going to be an emphasis. But all of us have all God's truth is for all of God's people. So let's read here in Luke 2, beginning in verse 39. When they, it's Mary and Joseph, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, this is Jesus, the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And here's the only scene we really get of Jesus' childhood. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and with his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and, became, and, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Father, give us help, and by your word and by your spirit and by your sufficient grace, that everyone who's here can at least leave this morning knowing an extremely important lesson that your word teaches about children. I believe that if we were to reflect on our own childhood, once we learn what this lesson is, we would affirm that it's true. But even more important than our own personal experiences, the Word of God outlines this truth. So, Father, give us grace. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may be seated. We're going to keep our Bibles open there in Luke chapter uh, 2, be our primary text. We'll look at a few others. I was at the barber shop uh, end of last week and I was waiting for my turn in the chair. And so I picked up the newspaper and read a, an article written by a man named David Brooks. You may have heard of him. He's a fairly well-known um, uh, author for the New York Times. And so they had reprinted one of his articles. And uh, in it, he talked about a project that went on not long ago. 100 Americans and 100 uh, Japanese were given the same project. They were given a single sheet of paper. On side A of the sheet of paper, they were asked to write down all the decisions in their life that they want to make for themselves. On the other side, side B of the sheet of paper, was uh, where they would list all the decisions they want other people to make for them. 100 Americans, 100 Japanese. How do you think this project went? The Americans filled up side A with all the major decisions. Who I want to marry, when and if I'll have children, where I'll go to school, where I'll work, at what time I'll get up in the morning, on and on and on. All the decisions that you would expect Americans want to make for themselves. Side B, many Americans left completely blank. In other words, we don't want anybody to make any decision for us. Uh, the most frequent uh, side B of, of, of Americans that was listed a decision was, well, if uh, someone else will probably, whether that's somebody, God maybe, or whomever, maybe they would choose when I would die. But that's the only thing that Americans said would be on side B. The Japanese, you're already anticipating this perhaps, different culture, different worldview. Many of them turned in and side A was blank. 
They don't want to make decisions. We want other people to give us input. We want other people to help us. They filled up side B with the same things Americans filled up side A. Does it make sense, right? Where I'll work, who I'll marry, when I'll get up in the morning, so on and so forth. The vast majority of Japanese said they wanted other folks' input. Well, the project is uh, confirming something you probably already had an inclination to think would be true. Americans want to make decisions for ourselves, right? And then the author, David Brooks, began to point out that it's probably true that Americans now have more freedom to make more decisions for themselves than any people ever have. And then he asked an interesting question. Is this a good thing or a not good thing? Is it a good thing that Americans have more freedom to make more of their own decisions than any people ever? And here was his answer, and I thought it was pretty insightful. He said, it is good to have more freedom to make more decisions if you know how to make wise decisions. A good point, isn't it? So, so let's narrow that down and let's just apply it for a moment to the topic of children and, and parenting. Parents have to make any decisions, right? You find yourself with little ones making decisions. I just wrote down a sample. I brainstormed for about four or five minutes, and here's just the decisions that you have to make. What kind of entertainment and programming is allowed, right? What television shows will we watch, will we not watch? When can my child have their own cell phone? Do I allow my child to sleep over at a friend's house? What activities, sports and music lessons and clubs do we sign up for? What's the best, best method of discipline? How can I make sure they don't eat just sugar all the time? What chores and responsibility should my children have? Now, friends, for parents, it's not a matter of if you'll have to make decisions and choices. You're making them all the time. We're back to the original point. It's, it's not about if I'll make decisions. It's will I make wise decisions? Will I make wise choices? Wouldn't it be helpful? Wouldn't it be helpful if we just had some major signposts, if you will, that help us make decisions, right? Because I know you can't open up the Bible and it won't, you can't turn to Luke 9, for example, and say, well, here's the number of grams of sugar to eat and here's a da-da-da-da. But I do believe the Bible gives us some huge principles that every parent whose desire, now this is the caveat, every parent whose desire is to raise children who run after the Lord, who pursue Christ, who trust him, who believe in the cross, who believe in the resurrection. There are a few hallmarks that we could hold on to. And that's my aim this morning is to give you a really big principle, really big principle, and then some really practical applications and implications of that principle. Third John verse 4, third John verse 4 articulates the sort of heart that I'm preaching towards this morning. Third John verse 4, you just hear it, Apostle John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. That's what he says. That's a good measure for me, right? What is, what would bring me no greater joy about my children, right? You fill in the blank. It would give me no greater joy than to hear that my child is, you fill in the blank, right? Because all of us have that, and that reveals a little bit about our heart, and the scripture says that no greater joy than my children are walking in the truth. I'll give you an illustration that hopefully will uh, direct where we're where we're going. It's a baseball illustration, so I brought my baseball. Believe it or not, this is going to come as a surprise. 25 years ago, I was on the Rocky Mount All-Star team. I'll just let you, I'll just let you take a moment, just to collect that in. It was actually true. Probably four or five, eight kids, you know, said they couldn't do it, so they put me on the team, and I played first base, and we were in a tournament. We were in a tournament in Williamston, and every practice, uh, week after week after week, our coach would make us a practice a play, and every time we practiced the play, you can tell we really worked on it because I still remember it. He said, this play is only for a certain scenario. Now, you just hang with me. If you know baseball, you'll be able to follow along, and I'll try to explain it in a way that even if you don't know baseball, you'll just track along. It's when the opposing team is hitting, and we've got runners on first and third with two outs. This is what I want us to do. So here it was. The pitcher is going to throw the ball, and the catcher was going to catch the ball. Now, if that runner on first base, and by the way, I was the first baseman, if that opposing team's runner on first base had taken a leadoff and was kind of being a little bit lazy about it, 
the catcher who had just taken the pitch was going to, keyword, pretend that he was going to throw the ball towards first base. My responsibility was I had to dive and act like I had missed the ball, and then the, get my right and left, the right fielder was going to pretend like he was running after the ball all the way to the, uh, to the fence so that their other runner on third base would start to run home. And who's got the ball? Who's tracking with me? Catcher still got the ball, and the catcher would just reach out and touch the runner, and they would be out. Deception, right? Deception. So, lo and behold, here we are, semifinal of the tournament. Guess what we got, friends? We're up by one, two runners on, first and third, two outs, and the and the coach sends in, sends in the signal, and my heart begins to flutter, and I begin, what, what am I supposed to Oh, yeah, 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 I'm supposed to dive. So, pitcher throws, catcher pops up, fakes like he fires, I dive down, everybody starts screaming, everybody starts yelling, he missed the ball, the other players on our team were conditioned and coached, he's missing the ball, here goes the right fielder, he's looking up in the sky, at least look down on the ground, you know, go check. And, and then the runner on third's like this, and, third, and then finally the third base coach says, run, run, and he goes, and the catcher tags him. We have won the game. Here's the point. Parents, parents, please hear me. Please hear me. You're deceived all the time about what's really important in the life of your children. And, and you got somebody, somebody? It's not about wanting to tag your child out. Jesus said the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. How do you protect yourself against the onrush, the constant bombardment of what's really important. You've deceived about it all the time. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. You know way, you, you know how you fight against deception is you know the truth. So, what we want to do in Luke 2, I just want to point out something that's true. Point something that's true so that parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, church, family, all those who know and love children and desire what God desires for them, we can hold fast to this truth. So, let's get to the principle. Let's get to the, uh, uh, and, and, I, and I feel the pressing need to say that this is not a mathematical equation, right? Wouldn't it be nice if we just said, if we assured that we do step A and step B and step C, the output will be a godly child who loves Jesus. And that's not what I'm saying. We're talking about human beings, Right? So many variables. But what I do want to advocate is you adopting and understanding a principle that would be extremely helpful. Because you have to make wise choices. Speaking again specifically to parents, our choices matter. We don't get to pass off that responsibility to somebody else, right? Sometimes it feels like it'd be nice if we could. I'll never forget the moment that this reality came down crystal clear to me. It was early May. 2005, and I was holding little Mary Clara, my precious daughter, my firstborn, in my arms, and uh, we had had much help. Uh, my mom and Julie's mom had helped, but I'll never forget that moment when um, Mimi, uh, my mother-in-law, walked out the door. She said, God bless you. She had prayed, and she walked out the door, and I can still hear the reverberating through the whole house of her closing the door and me realizing it's on us. And it's a human being, and I love her. And it was at that moment I said, but I don't know what I'm doing. Ever had that moment? And then the diaper needed to be changed. Where's Julie? Help me out. Right, this precious life. An eternal life, friends. Somebody's going to be alive a million years from now, somewhere. My choices matter because God's given me the responsibility of making wise choices in my home as I'm preparing. You ready for this? As I'm preparing my child to be able to make wise choices. Because i got to equip Mary Clara and Abel and Priscilla and Juliana because adulthood is coming. And here's just one small thing I want to instill on all of us who are in this season of life. You don't have long to do it. Now, I know. I'm right there, friends. It feels like you do. In fact, you feel exhausted. If you're in the season right now of life, little sleep, changing diapers, being woken up at 2 a.m. I know what you think. Will this ever end? Let me give you the answer. Yes. 
Yeah, it is going to end. And as I even ask that question, I can look out of the congregation, and every grandparent has a certain disposition in face, and every parent has it. Parents are like, oh, it's sitting every hand. And parents, you know what all the grandparents in the room just did when I said yes? Sure will. Sure will. Yes, it will end. As a matter of fact, those of us who are thinking, when will this ever end? Very soon we'll be thinking, where did it ever go? So, so, got a few options. You just kind of look around and see what everybody else is doing. See what most all the other parents are doing and just adopt that. Or what we want to do is look here in the Scripture. And in the home life of Jesus, we have two verses, two verses that refer to Jesus in his childhood. If we read this together at the beginning, so there's a statement that made about Jesus, and then you get this scene of Jesus when he's about 12 years old, and then there's another summary statement about Jesus, right? So let's read the two summary statements. They're Luke 2.40 and Luke 2.52. So let's read them. Luke 2.40, the child, Greek word, little one, little bitty child. This is right after his birth and after he's been dedicated in the temple. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So on first reading, they sound really similar, don't they? Sound like he just repeated himself. But, but I think what's actually different in these verses is, again, what I call the most important lesson about children in the Bible. So wise parents will understand this, believe this, and make decisions in their home based on this. So here it is. You ready? 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 Ready. In the first verse, the verbs are all passive. In the second verse, they're all active. Well, that didn't, okay. I know, I know. Does that bless you? If you write that, if you write that down, passive verbs, active verbs. I know. Preachers in there talking about verb tenses. I know. But let's use an example so that we understand the principle, right? Passive verb when Jesus is little. Active verb after. Did you, hit, did you get the age, by the way? That's going to be important. Age was what? Twelve. Twelve years of age, he went down to the temple. After that scene, he went back and the verbs are active. So here we go. It's a two-for-one sermon and English composition lesson at once. We'll use the baseball again. Passive verb, the ball was thrown, right? It's a passive verb. Who did the throwing? I did, but what was the subject of the sentence? The ball was. So here's a simple, real simple. A passive verb is the subject of the sentence is being acted upon, right? The ball was thrown. Active verb, active verb, the subject does the acting. I, anybody want to catch let me look around. Let me see. Oh, this is an unprecedented opportunity. Anybody want to? Okay, no, we won't do it. All right. A few. Well, we won't go into it. I was going to say a few are certainly not ready to catch this. But we'll m- m- moving on, moving on. That was too active. I should have been passive in that. Okay. Moving along. Here, here's the principle. In fact, I wrote it down in your notes so you can go on and write it as well. Here's the principle. After the age of 12, this is a general principle. A child increases in the character traits that have been instilled in the previous 12 years. We're tracking along together? After the age of 12, generally speaking, now here's where we're getting this. If you've got your Bible open, keyword in verse 40, keyword in verse 52. Here they are. Keyword in verse 40. The child grew, became strong, filled. He's being filled up with something. In this case, being filled up with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. But the child's being acted upon means his parents are filling him up with something. Now, it's really simple, and you're already there. About, uh, around what age? Generally speaking, around the age of 12, there's a switch. There's a flip. And the child is no longer being acted upon. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary, isn't it, parents? All of a sudden, now the child is starting to act out. What do they act out? Here it is. They increase in what has been instilled. So those are the two key words. So here's the obvious. Here's our direction. Here's where we're going. How do you know and how do you make sure in those first 12 years you're instilling wisdom and godliness and humility and righteousness and a hunger for Christ and so on and so forth? Those are good, those are good questions. Now, I want to say parenthetically, I'm not suggesting that 
human beings are automatons. I'm not suggesting that if a 13-year-old has never heard of Jesus, that they can't come to faith in Christ and be used uh, gloriously and powerfully. There's so many examples of that. We're just talking about general principles as a parent who believes in Christ. This is my opportunity and responsibility. And I'd really love for us as a church family to emphasize and harp on the opportunity component of that statement. But you look at this in just a few considerations. This is true positively and negatively. Do you know who would be able to underscore this principle? We're my sixth and seventh grade teachers, right? You know this already. You know on the first day of school, when you get the 12-year-olds and the 13-year-olds, it's totally different than you had the seven and eight-year-olds, right? What's happened? Is they begin to increase. Now, when I say positively and negatively, this is what I mean. If for the first 12 years of his life, a boy is instilled with that his life's not important, that he's not valuable, that he has no purpose, he will increase with what has been instilled in him. He will increase in anger, hostility, violence. Those are the things that he'll increase in. Why? Because those were the things that were instilled. If a child is filled up for the first 12 years of his or her life, that their value is based on their performance. And if you just get such and such grades, and if you just succeed such and such on the athletic field, and if you, then, then we'll approve you based on your performance. They'll carry that, friends, for the most part, unless God intervenes in the way that God certainly can intervene, they'll carry a part of that for the rest of their lives. Now, here's, here's a, here's a, way we could do this. Everybody in the room, as best as you can, go back to when you were age seven in your mind, right? Age seven, what is that? Second grade, third grade, somewhere in there. Think think about age seven. Who was really influential in your life? Mom, a dad, maybe a Sunday school teacher. Just think about what, and just ask this question, what were some of the things that were being instilled in you at age seven? Now, pop quiz. Has that had an implication in your life? Absolutely it has. Absolutely it has. As a matter of fact, it might have more implication. Your character, what you're afraid of, what you're not afraid of, what you get angry about, what you don't get angry about, what you find entertaining, what you don't find entertaining, there may be anything else. Now, who's behind this principle? Who designed it this way? God did. This is the way God made us. So parents, we need to make use, right, of this understanding because a transition's coming. Transition when a child begins to do the acting. A child begins to do the thinking. You ready for this? The child begins to do the deciding. This could be very difficult for some parents to deal with. I, I would put myself projection-wise or right up against it. Oldest is 11. For Jesus, the increase was in wisdom and in stature. Now, he's the son of God. But he, in the incarnation, he'd put off, he'd not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. And he, in the incarnation, is placed in Mary and Joseph's house. And he increases in wisdom and stature. But for other children, they're instilled with anger or bitterness or insecurity. So it's foolish to think a child will increase in wisdom if he or her he or she, <laughs> I'm done with the English lessons probably, hasn't been instilled with wisdom. A simple, few simple thoughts and applications. Don't be surprised if for the first 12 years of a child's life you cultivate in them a desire for entertainment and screen time and constant bombardment of visual stimulation. And then you, when they turn 12, you say, now sit down and read this book, right? I don't think so. You know what they'll think this book is? boring. Parents, let your children, for the glory of God, be bored occasionally. Amen? Let let, let them be bored from time to time. As a matter of fact, when my child comes up to me and says, Daddy, I'm bored, I just count that as victory. Did it! Succeeded! They're bored! What possible chance does any teacher in any school stand if children are over-acclimated to constant visual media? 
I just uh, parenthetically would refer to you, uh, you to a, a great website that I came across as I was studying. It's 360family.org. It's got great information on there, and I think parents need to be um, uh, learning about how to carefully handle, particularly the subject of media. Hey, friends, listen. Listen, I love history. I love to read history books. And it's true. When they write history books 100 years from now, what they'll say of this season, this era of history, is it was the telecommunications explosion, right? And I don't know. I don't know if we've handled it well when it comes to the parenting dynamic of children. Because here's the... I'm not saying this is all the time. Please hear me. Please, I want to speak with great grace and patience and understanding that I'm not doing everything right in my own life. But we've got to think carefully where we're treading when children have so much that's accessible. Can I give you, you know, preachers always harp on statistics in this area, but can I just give you a few? Because I do think statistics can be eye-opening, particularly for us when it comes to this subject of entertainment. But parents, back to the responsibility, you're responsible for what your child views, what's accessible in your home. You should know what your children are watching. You should know what they're seeing on the internet. If you allow your children access to the internet without accountability, now here's the, here's the strange dynamic, unprecedented in many ways, is when it comes to the use of entertainment and internet and media in the home, in your home, who knows the most about it? The child does, right? If for you, it's like learning a different language, right? Some of us, watch this remote, you're, you're pointing the garage door opener at the television, right? The garage door's going up and the TV won't come on. It's how we are. It's a dangerous scenario, isn't it? Because you know what the internet has made accessible? Everything. Something's good. Something so dark and destructive, you'd stay up at night if you only knew. Better not to know, by the way, about some things. Now, here's a statistic. Only 3% of boys, you ready for this? 3% of boys 17 and younger, have never seen online pornography. 3%. Only 3%. Only 17% of girls have never seen online pornography. So destructive. And if that gets instilled in a boy, and and, uh, next statistic, next statistic, the average boy sees it for the first time. I've read two places, two different things, so I want to... 11 and 9. That gets instilled. Friends, that's going to increase. And I don't know. I'm not a fear monger. I don't know what's coming in the generation that's coming on this basis. That gets instilled. It gets increased. 70% of all 18 to 24-year-old men visit a pornographic site in a typical month. I'll just read these out. I'm not trying to bombard, but I do want to open some eyes. 2.5 billion emails per day are pornographic. By by, by the way, I do feel the need to say, I do think there's a a lot of online content that the world does not categorize in pornography, as pornography. I mean, even get that label, it's got to be outrageous. But there's so many things that don't get labeled that way that truly are pornographic. It's incredibly dark and destructive. The most popular day for viewing pornography is Sunday. That's just one aspect. Whole other world out there, cyber bullying. 25% of teenagers report that they've been cyber bullied online. Only 10% of their parents know. How about that? So many young people being bullied, being made fun of. The most common targets of cyberbullying are 16 to 17-year-old girls. Do we know what's happening out there, right? The things that are said of your daughters, the things that they're subjected to. Two out of three teenagers say they've witnessed cruel behavior online among their peer group. All right, last statistics and we'll move on. The average daily use of media exposure for the average 8 to 18-year-old, average daily use is 10 hours and 45 minutes a day. That's just about every waking moment, friends. Good news, though, good news. As powerful as the Internet is, I still believe a praying, involved parent is more influential in the life of their child than the Internet could ever be. Amen? Amen. And parents, we've got a great responsibility in this area. 
And of course the church at large can help. Grandparents can help. Perhaps you have people in your family, little, uh, little children, nieces, nephews, grandchildren that receive no spiritual wisdom and instruction at all. So be a letter writer. You're going to be the one who writes them a card every week. Be someone who prays for them and with them. Because the transition's coming. Who's tracking along with me? When does the transition, by and large, happen? At the age of 12. So a few practical applications as we continue uh, along this morning. For parents, a few practical things. Number one, be aware the transition is coming. Right? You see it? Redeem the time. I know, I know, I know it's exhausting. I know. One, one more glass of water before bed? Are you kidding me? One more mess that you've made at my table. Well, friends, better to be patient while they make a little mess at your table than they make a mess, bigger mess later on, right? So, one, be mindful of the coming transition. Number two, equip your child to be able to make wise decisions for himself or herself. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Three, persevere during the young years. Don't grow weary and doing good. I know it might seem that you're not seeing much fruit. You're not seeing much of a harvest. You're sitting there and you're trying to read that Bible story to them and they're just playing with their toys and they won't listen and so on and so forth. They actually are listening more than we think. Train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old, he's not depart from it. That's the the proverb saying, underscoring what we're suggesting here. So, I think it's also worth noting that the Bible speaks about childhood and adulthood. Did you know this? The, the Bible doesn't offer up this third season that we in the West have very recently created called teenager. Adulthood, childhood. We in the West created the third, teenagers. We, we, we created this third season, and this is what it seems to me, friends. This is my little input that the teenage years are now where too often children are given the rewards of adulthood but not the responsibilities of adulthood. And you need to tread very carefully with that, my friends. Can you just ask, can I just ask you this? What would happen? What would happen if a young person, teenager, Bible word, still a child, is given the benefits of adulthood but no responsibilities of adulthood. What do you think might happen? Do you think they might say, I'll just keep the benefits and I'll put off the responsibilities? Do you think that might happen? Most sociologists now say that American adolescence goes from age 12, you ready for this? To age 27. Age 27. Why? Could it be? Could it be? We got the car to drive around, but we don't have to pay for the gas. We we'll have to pay for the insurance. Parents will pay for my schooling and my housing. Mom, Dad, I want you to pay for this, but you don't get any input in my morality, right? Sexual relationships severed from marital fidelity. I can be with who I want to be with, how I want to be, when and where, and no one can ever, 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 ever tell me otherwise. Childhood, adulthood. So, there's a practical application. As your children are in that season, in that season, Just cling to the truth that the Bible says there's childhood and there's adulthood. And you need to be preparing them for adulthood. But one way you don't prepare a child for adulthood is give them the benefits of adulthood, the increasing freedoms, without the corresponding responsibility. And the church helped the pastor out by saying, amen. Now, heartache comes when a parent can procrastinate in disciplining a child during the ages of three and four and five and six and seven And ends up with a sarcastic, rebellious, disrespectful middle school or high school child and then tries to do for a 16-year-old what should have been done for a 6-year-old. And friends, it can happen. We've all been there. Children need love and grace and forgiveness. They also need discipline. Children, what they really need is structure and they need to know here's where the boundaries are, right? One of the reasons we're living in a culture now increasingly where they say, well, there are no boundaries about anything is because that's how... So many have grown up. Now, odds are that your job's going to be a little bit harder than Mary's, right? Jesus, please go do your homework. Already did. Please make up your bed. Already did. Can you set the table? Already did. But, but having read the epistle of James, I bet he was a handful before he was saved, don't you? Can you imagine an unsanctified James? 
Well, give you a few things here. Give you a few things. First, about the home life of Jesus. There's some exhortations for you. Number one, the home life of Jesus, worship together was a priority. Verse 22, Luke 2.22. We hadn't read this yet, but I just want you to see that every time we're looking at Jesus' family, they're doing something. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Look at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. So can we just say this? When you look at the home life of Jesus, worshiping together was a priority. It was not um, just whenever we, when it's convenient. They, they set out that this is who we are and this is what we're going to do and we're going to read what the Bible says and we're going to read the, uh, the and, and then we're going to act and make our decisions based on the scripture. So worshiping together as a family is so incredibly important. Friends, worship is not an event that you go to. It's an activity that you participate in with together. Amen? church service is not just something you just show up at the same time. So let me plead with you and let me just give you some exhortation to to make the most out of weekly worship. How could you do that? Well, one is that you don't just show up on Sunday and just be passive about it. You know what a good habit would probably be with your children to pray on Saturday night before you go to church together on Sunday morning. Just get the family together at bedtime. Say tomorrow we're going to study the Bible together. We're going to go to Sunday school. We're going to go to worship. We're going to hear about Jesus. I think, friends, if, if um, two things, can, two, two things uh, that are maybe not ideal. One would be a family that's always going to church together, but in the home never speak about the Lord. That sends a strange message to children, right? We, we go to f- church and we sing these songs and we study the Bible, but outside of that building, we never talk about it. And then on the flip side, I think it'd be hurtful for any family that really seeks to pursue Jesus together, but they're not involved regularly worshiping together. Does that make sense? I I think what happens best is when they work together, right? That you're doing both. Worship is so incredibly important. Every decision that you make, I want to be able to tie it to Scripture. So let's go to Hebrews. I do want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I'm taking this because when we look at the family life of Jesus, worship was so incredibly important. So as a pastor, I want to say to you, in your family life, make worship important. And it's not just about children. Maybe your children might be grown and they're out of the house. Make worship important in your home. Husbands and wives, whatever season of life, worship is important. We're going to go together. We're going to study God's word together. We're going to sing together. So uh, this immediately made me think of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. We hear it quoted a lot. Look what it says. So I want to zoom in on 25, and then I want to zoom out so you see the full picture. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, it's so easy, particularly in the little years. And, and I don't think this is coincidental, by the way, friends. Particularly in the little years, it can become so easy to neglect, you know, let me use the Bible word, neglect to meet together. What's the author of Hebrews talking about? That we're not regularly worshiping with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, here you go. You're going to make some legalistic requirement of Sunday morning attendance. That's not my desire. But I do think sometimes we're so worried about being legalistic that we lose our common sense. So let's zoom out. Let's zoom out and see what it is that regularly meeting together should be about. Because it can be legalistic to just say, you ought to da-da-da-da-da. But look what he says. Let's go back up to verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to draw near into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain. You know what he's saying, by the way? You've got a better opportunity than Mary and Joseph when they showed up at the temple because now Jesus has come. And you're not going to go present yourself in the temple and make another sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. As a matter of fact, that's that whole scene in Luke 2. They're taking the Lamb of God into the temple. And by the way, he's coming back. And that's why the prophet comes along and says, there's a sword going to pierce your soul, Mary, because Jesus is going to come back. He is the temple. He's going to do away with all these things. How, friends, hold a high standard of view and worship among your children. 
One of the reasons children may not think much of going to church is that parents, we sometimes don't think much of it. But look at the language. You've got confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confection of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day uh, approaching. Now, we're coming to a close. If you were the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church, and you love the people of Calvary Baptist Church, and you believe your primary responsibility is to stand before the people of God and open the word of God and instruct them in the ways of God, and you read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, what would you tell your church family? It might be this, it might be this. I want you to make the connection. He's making a connection that as you meet together, here's what's happening, should be happening. And we can pray to this end. As you meet together, your heart, the insurance of your faith is increasing. A full assurance of faith. Your conscience cleansed, right? And you become more devoted to hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. So now, so, so now you're unwavering in your confidence in the, in the Lord. And you get stirred up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So can we let's just flip it around? If you don't meet together, if you say, well, you know, it's just a legalistic requirement. We don't really have to be there. And da, 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 da. What happens? All those positives are at stake, friends. Understand what I'm saying to you? Understand what I'm saying? You've got little ones in your home. Can, can we just say it? The days of hope in the world will make worship on Sundays a priority. Those days are gone, friends. Now we're responsible to make decisions. We've got to hold fast to confession. I, I, think, I think the Bible is saying this. Being with your children to sing to Jesus to give sacrificially for the gospel to advance, to be around other like-minded families, to open the Bible and, and study and have the Holy Spirit changing our lives is not something I feel like, I've okay, I've got to go do that. I, I feel the impulse of Scripture is that this is something we get to do. If God's done what he's done, we get to be together. We get to share the Scripture together. We get to be stirred up. Well, I've got about six more pages, but I won't go through all of it. Give you a few practical things. Uh, can we look at one more scripture? Uh, Deuteronomy 6, where we started with the baby dedication. I don't think any parent would say, I, I want the confidence and full assurance of the hope of Christ to deteriorate in my children. I, I, I'd really love for... Uh, for their conscience is not to be cleansed. I, I want them to get. But do you see what Hebrews is saying? None of us would say we want to do that. Here's, here's what the author is saying. Then don't neglect to meet together. Now, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel. Actually, begin in verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, the statute, and, and, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you are to do them in the land. See, do them, not just know about them, to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, your son, you and your son and your son's sons. He's generational by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You see, that's what the emphasis is. We're not trying to be legalistic. It's on the heart. Here's a phrase. Pay attention, parents. You shall teach them diligently to your children. When do you talk about it? You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So I aim to be real practical here in the closing minutes. Here are four 
four times that I found it really helpful to just talk to my children about the Lord. Just four different times. Number one, car time. Car time. All in the same place. You know, your children have to be buckled in in a, a, a car seat till the age of 20 now. So you're going to have a captive audience. They just got to sit, you got to strap them in. And their, do their feet need to be bound? And all sorts of things. So you're going to ride around a lot with your children. Anybody, anybody, you take your child to school in the morning or you pick your child up. I know some, sometimes your parents, you feel like all I'm doing is just driving them around. Now, friends, redeem the time. You're going to be driving them around. You're going to be driving them around. Use that time. Use that time that you're going to talk. Look, look at the words that he says. You shall speak and teach. All those are verbals. You don't have to, every time you get in the car, everybody plug into some device and tune everyone else out, right? Tune in together. If, if you take your child to school, on the way to school, pray for them. Pray. Set a pace. Set a tone. Set a, set a, a direction. That's, that's what we're talking about. Like the arrows in a warrior's hand are the children of one's youth. That's what you're doing. Sharpening up an arrow. Use the drive time from church to talk about the sermon, the lessons. Uh, so one, car time. Two, bedtime. <laughs> use those minutes before bed full disclosure i've not done well with this i fight this in my life at bedtime i always want them to go to bed so i can finally relax and here's what's going to happen i'm going to be a little older than i am now and i'll say you know all that time i wanted them to get into bed so i could just watch the game i don't even know who won those games i don't even care you know what they needed you know what a child a little because uh, because there does seem to be a sensitivity Sometimes it's just a stubbornness. Okay, full disclosure. We just want another glass of water. But there's a sensitivity in the heart of a child at bedtime. That's when he talk about the big things, the important things, the precious things. When he read the... Uh, uh, in fact, tomorrow my plan is I'll put up on our church's Facebook page a, a, a list of wonderful resources that you could use in your home. Bedtime stories and so on and so forth. Um, so car time, bedtime. Number three, vacation time right? Go and play together and have fun together, but also be intentional. Maybe that's more extended car time that as you go somewhere and you're going to, uh, whatever the vacation, you're going to go to the mountains or you're going to go to the beach. Uh, moms and dads, you, you prepare a, a, that as almost a retreat, if you will, like a spiritual retreat. Yeah, we're going to be at the beach and we're going to build the sandcastles, but I'll tell you what, we're going to get around the table and we're going to pray together. We're going to do a check-in for our hearts, our souls. I didn't have time. I didn't have time for this. Uh, if we had, we'd do the model of Paul and Timothy. And basically what Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, you got knowledge when you were a child, that knowledge grew into faith and firm conviction and wisdom. So you want to be charting that in your children. Are they, uh, main point of that is knowledge is not enough. Friends, your 18-year-old goes to college and sits in religion class 101, and he might know a lot about the Bible, but so does that professor about the Bible, but he might not know God. And there is a huge difference between being able to regurgitate the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes and Noah's story and so on and really believing these things and having any conviction. Uh, so car time, bedtime, vacation time, last thing, you get you one night a week. One night a week. This is a suggestion to you. No TV, no media. We either read together, go on a walk together. Julie's going to say amen. I set you up. Go on a walk together. Okay, let's Pray together. Keep it simple. I, I just tell you, if, if you'll just set aside a time, this is a non-negotiable. We just got this night. Friends, if you don't set a schedule, it will get set for you. That's what Deuteronomy 6 is saying. Friends, that's why I'm saying these things, because that's what he's saying. When you lie down, when you walk. They didn't have cars. That's why he doesn't say when you drive around, right? When, when you uh, lie down, when you rise, bind them. So another good time is breakfast time. You might be saying, Brandon, I don't have any of those times. We're just on the go, on the go, 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 go. It's a good place to start, taking inventory. So, concluding thoughts and applications. And everybody said, oh, good, amen, right? Here's our big picture. Most likely, most likely, my child is going to increase around the age of 12 in what has been instilled in him or her. So, start where you are. None of us have done perfect with this, right? Start today. Ask God to give you a specific application from today. Maybe it's we'll make better use of the car time, better use of the bedtime, better use of the, uh, you know, I'm going to write my grandchildren more. Every couple of months, I think it's wise to just stop and take inventory. 
If he can do it, moms and dads, go out on a date. Remember those? Sit down. Just ask a simple question. What are we instilling in our children right now? What's really being instilled in them? I did write this down, and I'll just say it. Is there room in your home to help take care of one more child? It might be something like Compassion International. So many children around the world, they got nobody. Well, they got so little. Your application might be that you're going to seriously pray about fostering or adoption. So many little ones going to increase in what's being instilled, and they got nobody instilling in them. So here's the real conclusion. Friends, we're not up to this task. We're not up for this. But God knows it. The, the, hopefully, where this lands isn't, oh, I need to be doing more and working harder. Friends, if any sermon comes across, I need to do more and work harder, it's not been a gospel sermon. And that's not been my aim. See, see we ourselves need grace and strength provided by Jesus. So, do you see? God's got this whole thing rigged. Do, do you know the best way, the best way a child comes to see their own need of Christ is by seeing a mom and a dad who likewise stand there and say, we need your help. We need you. We need your grace in our home. Include your children in praying for the decisions that you make. Maybe it's media decisions. You just get the family together. We're going to pray about this, y'all. I am not going to be a parent who just passively sits by and sees the culture of the, the current of the culture just kind of carry you wherever it's going to go. You know where the culture, I can't say it, the current of the culture will carry you? Somewhere your child, you probably don't want your children to be. We need Lord's, we need the Lord's help. So I'm going to conclude and we're going to pray. Here's the gospel application. We need the grace of God. We need his help. So during our invitation, we're going to sing together. Might be you want to get your little ones. And you pray where you are. You might just want to come down here to the front. Get your little ones together and pray. Or maybe you don't recognize how good the Father has been to you. <laughs> what he wants to instill in you that you'd increase in is your understanding of the gospel. Right? You understand that you need the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you'd use this invitation time just to resolve a few things. We're going to be devoted to worshiping together as a family. Not because we have to, but because I want to increasingly see the benefits of worship, right? It is easy. It is easy to not think worship's important. If it is, just let's get everybody dressed, everybody in the car, and just get there. But when you zoom out and say, well, we're going to pray together. We're going to talk about the things in the Word. And so, so uh, initiative and active, that's what I'm encouraging parents to be in the lives of their children. Okay, let's stand together pray together. Now is the time that having looked at God's word and what his word says, we invite the Holy Spirit to come. I've given you a few practical suggestions or applications. Maybe the Holy Spirit would bring greater ones, better ones, clearer ones. In your own heart, if there's some things that just need to get resolved in these moments, let's do that now. Father, in your word, children go from being passive to being active quickly, 12 years. And they increase in what's been instilled in them. So, Father, would you help this, this, this principle be applied in a very gospel-centered way? 